Happy season, sports movie fans, and thank you very much for downloading the 90-second dose of Scoring at the Movies podcasting pseudo-magic. Just pseudo. We discuss sports flicks every other Thursday, and just like the other 91 times, we will be spoiling the Bad News Bears. I'm the short infielder who wants to fight everyone and likes to say crud a lot. Well, I have a relative who says crud a lot, at least. Maybe not me so much. Stepmother-in-law. Ryan Ellis. And here's the cantankerous beer drinker who would never waste any of the precious fluid by dumping it on the ground before adding some whiskey. Okay, maybe if it was a Budweiser, he'd do that. Chris Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I was going to have to correct you if you hadn't added that little addendum about the Budweiser at the end, but you're absolutely right. I'd have no qualms about dumping that out. Just out of my usual shame at our level of success in podcasting, I'd initially just stripped down and climbed one of your trees in the backyard, and I was hanging out there for a while. I got cold. I was expecting you to come rescue me, but anyway, came inside and figured we may as well record the podcast after Didn't all. give you a pep talk. And Hank Aaron doesn't care about you. Yeah, I thought you'd tell me, you know, maybe Hank Aaron recorded 42 podcasts before he had a success or something like that, but no motivational speech to be had. I had to pep myself. Isn't it curious? This is two years, well, when the movie was made, it was about a year after he broke the home run record and was still on a lot of people's lips as one of the great players, as he should have been, mm-hmm. of all time. And he only died earlier this year, 45 years later. It's true. So, I don't know what age she was, but it must have been in the 80s. Well, this is a movie about beer. We just said it. Walter Matthau is always drinking beer, and the kids get to enjoy beer, spray it around, <laughs> and maybe drink it at the end. So, open yours up. What do you got over there? I've got my manly squeeze play, strawberry rhubarb, sour beer. It's about as far from a bud as you can possibly get. Although, I think we see Matthau drink Schlitz at he one mixes point, it up. Coors at one point. Mm-hmm. I think we see at least four or five different generic, low-grade, mass-produced 70s American beers. Plus whiskey, obviously, in his beer. And then a martini at one point when he's bragging about his minor league days. I enjoyed that scene simply because he has the kid make the martini, takes a sip, and he just turns around and is like, spectacular. He's just really impressed with this kid's martini. Superb. Superb, that's it, yeah. (laughs) Well, it's a Simpsons line, actually. Enjoy that beer over there. I am drinking... I thought I'd have a beer, but I'm not. I have... CC and diet. Hey, what do you know? I had to think about that, but that's what I have. We're covering both ends of the Butterworth Butterman? Buttermaker? Buttermaker. Buttermaker. Boilermaker. I can't get that name straight. I think it's because of Mrs. Butterworth's pancakes. He's called Butterworth in this. He's called Boilermaker in this. Never called Morris, which is his first name. Is that actually his first Mm -hmm. name? Is that ever said in the movie? That's what I'm saying. I don't think it's ever said, but it's on the IMDb. It's on Wikipedia. Between us, we've got... His drink's covered. I've got the beer, you've got the whiskey. and Where's my martini? I failed badly not having a martini. I think you asked Sam to make you one a while ago, and instead he just went to sleep in his dog bed. So you'll have to reevaluate whether or not he's worth keeping on the pool cleaning crew or not, but <laughs> we'll talk about that after the podcast. His drink-making days are long over. Okay, The Surly Young Cubs was released by Paramount 45 and a half years ago on April 7th, 1976. You weren't born, and I was only two. The movie did very well and was 7th at the box office that year. Another famous sports movie, of course, Rocky, which won Best Picture that year, was number one. We'll do another Rocky movie next year. Rocky three, when it's 40 years old. It'll be 40 years old. For consideration in the future, 
retrospective episode. Rocky IV recut versus original Rocky, since we've done original cut of Rocky IV. I watched the recut. I enjoyed it for various reasons, but did not like it more because the camp is half the fun. You haven't watched it yet. So I haven't watched it yet, no. Maybe one day when it's free, I guess, right? I actually paid money for it, believe it or not, but we didn't <clears> pay money for this. I got this from the library for free. So the critical numbers on this are outstanding. I was a little bit surprised at how strong the critics feel about The Bad News Bears. 97% like the film on the strength of 33 reviews. 80% of audiences, also pretty good. The AFI nominated it for three lists. The Top 100 Laughs, the Top 100 Cheers, so most inspiring, and the Top 100 Genres in the Sports Category. That one I can get. Those nominations, though, the other two, Laughs and Cheers, are ironic because the movie isn't all that funny. It isn't all that inspiring. I agree with you. And one of the things I was going to ask you during the podcast is whether or not, in some ways anyway, you got a longest yard yep. or slap shot vibe off of this. because 70s I, comedies haven't been that funny for us. I wasn't sure whether or not this was actually intended to be a comedy. Mm-hmm, it is. You can have dramas that have hints of comedy in it, but you can also have straight up comedies like Caddyshack that are clearly meant to be slapstick comedies we didn't find funny anymore. Mm-hmm. There was fewer instances in this movie, even compared to like a slap shot, where I could see, okay, movie is trying to be funny, but humor has not aged over the last like 45 years or so very well, so I don't find it funny. There were precious few moments where I was looking at it thinking, am I meant to be laughing here? And we were doing that a lot in some of these other 70s movies that we watched together, certainly. Longest Yard being a great example where you could see like, oh yeah, this is meant to be a joke, cross-dressing, mm-hmm. cheerleaders or whatever, and it, it kind of irks me now. But there wasn't a lot here. There was a few instances, especially earlier on, when some of the language used... <laughs> I think that's supposed to be... Maybe okay. not that language, but the quote-unquote bad language is supposed to be funny because it comes from the mouths of kids. And I thought for sure this is a movie filled with the F-bomb and the S-bomb and so on. And maybe yeah. there's some S's, but there's no F's. But an awful lot of crud from Tanner, the little fighter. I expected exactly the same thing. I was surprised at how little there was, which is weird. There's a lot of language that I found really like uh, problematic, at least racist, oh, yeah, and very racist, homophobic, and stuff like it that. It isn't constant though. It's more early on because this team is an expansion team because there was a lawsuit brought about, and all the riffraff who never got to play at all in the league. You can see why early on are put together. So they are the N words and the Hispanics, not the word that's used by Tanner and the Jews and. The R word, I think, is thrown around a few times as well, right? They are all the people that didn't get to play before, and there's a brand new team in this league. They're the only team in the league, too, if you look at the standings, that isn't a major league named team. That's right. And I said Cubs a few minutes ago because, of course, a Cub is a baby bear. And we know the Chicago Cubs are one of the most famous teams of all time. And their big rival in this movie in the championship game is against the Yankees. The White Sox forfeit at one point. But they're a brand new team without a major league name. One of the nice touches, actually, one of the times I did chuckle a little, I didn't laugh very much at all, but I did snicker a little when you see Denny's and Pizza Hut are sponsoring the Yankees and probably yeah. the White Sox and various other teams, and then you see the uniforms in the back of the Bears is Chico's Bail Bonds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was cute. I wasn't sure whether that was meant to be an indictment of the kids. I mean, from like the movie maker's perspective. Look at how riffraffy these kids are that they can't get a half-decent fast food sponsor. Or was it meant to be like Walter Matthau only went to two places and was like, screw this, Chico, give me some money for uniforms, and then that's where he left it. I think that's it, yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. But then Keanu Reeves, and there's a lot of connections to Hardball in this film. There's a lot of connections to a lot of other movies that came after it, by the way. This movie 
If it's not the one that set this template, it's one of the ones that helped do it. The terrible team that didn't like each other, that come together, that usually get one or two superstars and then they become good. But Hardball, when he gets uniforms, those cool green and gray uniforms he gets for those kids towards the end of the season, the sponsor is a bar. Because it's oh, his friend right. at the bar he was always going to. I don't think it's a big deal. It's not a joke like in this with the Chico Bail box on the back of the shirt. You can't miss it. But that's who the sponsor is in that movie. All I could think of were the comparisons because it is such a close comparator. And now appreciating this movie predates Hardball by 30-ish years. There's a benefit of learning lessons over those 30 years that Hardball benefits from. And like you said, I think this was a trailblazer to set a template. But Hardball did this better, or I cared about these characters more. Or the Mighty Ducks did it better. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Obviously, it's a different sport, and it's maybe less directly comparable. But from the perspective of caring about the kids and still seeing the ragtag group of underdogs But that template. Yeah. One of the comparisons between the two, Hardball and Bad News Bears as well, is that Keanu Reeves and Walter Matthau, why they're doing this. They're paid by somebody else to run the team. Right off the very bat, we know this with Buttermaker. This isn't something we find out later on, or this isn't something where he has to do it just to get by and to eat like Reeves does in Hardball. He seems like he could do okay, meaning Matho's character, by cleaning the pools. And he is a former player. He's more interested in actually being a coach, by a little bit at least, than Keanu Reeves is in the early part of Hardball, or Estevez in the early part of Mighty Ducks, and so on and so on. Probably because he's... Well, then again, Estevez is a former player too, but probably because Matthau is a former player... Mm-hmm. And one thing I noticed in this, in thinking back to some of these other films, many other sports films, but this kind of template, one of the reasons I think that these coaches who don't seem to care about their ragtag team, who would never come together unless they were brought together by an outside force, and yes, they almost always add really good players, not in Hardball, but in a lot of other movies, they add really good players to make them a better team than they already were. But I think one of the real big important factors here is whether or not the coach has knowledge, and they always do, I guess, and we see a lot towards the end of this movie, it gets very serious at times their competitive juices get flowing. And here's a former player. So they don't care. He's drunk. Keanu's got his gambling problems. Estevez was put in the job because he drank too much and he's got problems. Mm -hmm. But in all these films in the end, I think one of the reasons why, and I never really thought about this until this viewing of Bad News Bears, and Hanks as well in The League of Their Own, they don't like to be part of a losing team. And so they may not care the whole time. There's another template, I guess, for this in some ways, The League of Their Own, especially with the manager, the coach. I think that's part of what's going on. Their competitive juices get flowing. We see the worst of it with the coach Turner, Vic Morrow on the Yankees team where he actually slugs his own well, slugs but slaps his own kid yeah, and the stadium too. goes silent do you notice how quiet the movie is when that happens yeah so I think that's a big factor here is that the managers coaches whether they have a terrible team or not they can't stand to just slough it off even if they are being paid and in the beginning that's all they wanted was the money I think that's true generally speaking and in this movie to an extent definitely this movie is commenting on parents of this era living through their children right hence like you said the slapped player the silence there's various shots throughout the movie of some parents ragging on the kids for dropping a ball and you feel like saying these guys are like 9 10 11 years old chill but then at the end after that slap the silence and then he goes back to the bench and there's that one mother or spectator who just goes it's his mother it's turner's mother it's turner's mother who goes you the turner kids mother, you son of a bitch Mm -hmm. and then turns and walks away it's meant to be a commentary But earlier on in this movie, I kind of expected exactly what you were describing, that you'd get this sort of reluctant coach who's doing it for reasons, maybe a little bit beyond he just wants to be involved in baseball, maybe he's got debts, who knows. Again, one of the things I kind of wish this movie did a little bit more was explain that element of it, because we get thrown right into him being assigned as coach, Mm. like first scene. 
And even in a movie like Hardball, where we don't get a lot of explanation. We know specifically why. But we know specifically why, exactly. And we even know why this rich, neglectful dude is sponsoring the team in Hardball. Because he just wants to be seen to be helping out a poorer community. But we're never really 100% certain why this parent is subjecting his son to this humiliation, forcing a lawsuit to do so, when we're explicitly told, also in that first scene, they could have joined other leagues. He immediately then wants Buttermaker to pull the team out after the first embarrassing loss. So I was a little bit confused about that. But anyway, with Buttermaker specifically, I kind of expected him to get in that first game and sort of like, yeah, I don't really care about this. But then as batters progress, start getting the competitive juices going. But that never really happened, which surprised me. It wasn't until he starts hearing that the kids are being bullied and pushed around because of what they're experiencing on the field. He's like, okay, I care about this a little bit. And then once he started to care, he started to get competitive. And then absolutely, once we started getting into that montage of games, he became more and more competitive as the team actually had an opportunity to win the games. So I agree with you. I just think the movie took an interesting route to get to that point where we haven't necessarily seen that in other movies because in the other movies, the coaches tended to get right to a competitive point at least faster. Well, they were already like the coach of Mighty Ducks. He obviously was decades before because of the way he treated Estevez. Exactly. And the way he still is now in the modern era of that film. And he had such a great jacket in that movie, too. He did. Pop that (laughs) collar. Pop that collar. Well, the key to the film when it comes to success, because the team would never have won much in the way of games, if any games at all, but they add a great pitcher in Amanda Wurlitzer, pretty solid performance by Tatum O'Neill, coming off an Oscar win only a couple years before with her father in Paper Moon. Ryan O'Neill was her dad in that movie. There was a two-hander, mostly. And she got a lot of money for this movie, by the way, as did Mathau, because the movie was so did successful. You? They got a lot of percentage of the profits. The other key player, of course, is Kelly Leak, and that's a young Jackie Earl Haley. Which freaked me out. <laughs> Never an attractive person, but... Even as a kid, he looked weird. That's <laughs> true. But I think he's pretty good and convincing as an athlete. I guess Tatum O'Neill is convincing enough, but did you notice she never bats? You could argue yeah. they have a DH. That seems weird for kids. You have a DH, though. I think they just never showed her batting because she probably was terrible at it. I didn't notice that she looked bad throwing a ball. I think she probably looked convincing enough, unless their stunt double work and their camera work was just that good with the editing that they covered up for it. But the character, at least, is a terrific young pitcher. She says she's almost 12. Tatum O'Neill really was almost 12 at this point because she won her Oscar when she was so young. I think she may have been the youngest ever winner, or one of, at least, youngest winners of all time. But they're the two key players. The only reason this team ever really has a chance at all. And that does lead me to the nutshell of Bad News Bears. Morris Buttermaker is Tommy Lasorda managing the 88 Dodgers. Why? He rides one great pitcher and one great hitter into the championship round. And that's about all he has. Well, okay, there are some other players in the Dodgers, but they were far and away not as good as the Mets or the A's in the playoffs that year. And that's true about this team, too, because if Kelly wasn't there, and especially before that if Amanda wasn't there, the Bears would have been lucky to even get close in a game. Because after they lose 26 nothing without having batted and not getting a single out against the Yankees in their very first game, Buttermaker gives up before they even finish that inning. That's enough. Yeah. It's over with. But when they do play a little bit better before they get Amanda and before they get Kelly, they still lose 18 to nothing. But, but they've, they've learned some things. They least. played an entire game, at least. That's true. They never scored. They didn't get any hits, as the stat guy points out. But they almost did. Tanner yeah. almost got to first base. So even when they're a little bit better, they're still incredibly terrible. But two key people, the Hershiser and Gibson factor, the reason why this team ever succeeds at all. 
And it is a movie that is very sincere about portraying Sandlot baseball, essentially, in a very specific time and place in the U.S. And I give it a lot of credit for that because it is clearly a movie that knows the overall subject matter and loves it and is trying to do an homage to it. But there's a couple things that irritated me about it, aside from the humor, or lack thereof, at least from the perspective of 2021 viewers. The reason it worked, I think, at least for me, was because you had to care about the success, not even of the coach, really, but of the players. You want the kids to succeed, right? But I didn't really care, for the most part, whether or not these kids won, lost, succeeded, what have you. That includes basically everybody except Tatum O'Neill. I thought her character was kind of interesting because they gave a little bit more breath to explaining her history and her history with Matha in particular and her mother and all that kind of stuff. Perhaps she's his daughter. Yeah, well, there's that question hanging over it, right? Which is one of the reasons why I'm like, okay, I kind of want to see her succeed if for no other reason then that will help repair this relationship a little bit that she doesn't really have right now with Matha. They can wipe away the glycerin tears. <laughs> yeah. And they both are crying after their big fight. That was another very sincere and not at all funny scene when they have their big fight after yeah. one of the games when she walks away. But she and Matha both look like they're not actually crying and that's just that fake tear stuff, glycerin, or whatever you call that. On their faces. Matho is generally fine in this role, and I like him in a lot of stuff in his career, but yeah, when he's portraying sadness, I don't know if that's really... He's good at hangdog, not so good at sad. Exactly. Although one of my favorite moments he's ever had, and he, of course, had such a long career and did so many movies, especially with Jack Lemmon, but it is a movie with Jack Lemmon, and it is Grumpy Old Men. When Lemmon's had the heart attack and he takes him to the hospital... Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. First, when he says, John, you okay? That's pretty good, and that's pretty sincere. He never calls him John otherwise. It's always Gustafson. But then when he's in the hospital... And the nurse says, are you a friend or family? He has to think about it for a second. Friend. And he barely gets it out. Yeah. And Matho doesn't tear up there, but I felt that was one of the most sincere emotional things that I ever saw him do in his whole life. I think that was a great scene. And obviously we don't see any kind of equivalent here. It's not as effective. I think we see an equivalent. It just isn't as effective. The scenes that they have yeah. together are pretty good. I would like to see Mathau, or like to have seen at the time, Mathau and O'Neill do a movie together where maybe they're more the focus because their yes. scenes are pretty damn good. I know why this movie was a comedy. It actually won the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Written Comedy. Bill Lancaster, who wrote this screenplay, that is Burt Lancaster's son. I did not know that. I've seen that <laughs> name before because he wrote The Thing, too, or at least was one of the writers on The Thing, meaning the famous one from 1982. Well, the original one was famous, too, but the one that we all liked, John Carpenter. And they also wrote one of the sequels to this series. There were a lot of sequels in this, or two anyway. Two. They didn't succeed as well with the critics or with the audiences. Didn't have the same box office. But this won the WGA for best comedy. So they're trying to be funny. But their best scenes might be the serious scenes. They really are. And I don't even think it's a question. I would argue that even if I was looking at this from a screwball 70s or 80s lens, I still think the best scenes of this movie are the dramatic ones. Part of the failing for this movie, in my eyes, was that I didn't care about the kids. And therefore, once we got to this final game, we're meant to be all excited. Maybe they'll come back in time. Maybe they'll win. And then, oh, they came up short. And then there's the heartwarming. Matho doesn't care anymore because he's learned the bigger lesson moment. Oh, he cares. He doesn't care about winning so much. He's not going to berate the players. Oh, no. Yeah, sorry. I mean, he doesn't care that they lost. Instead, he's discovered that the big thing is that they play as a team. They do all this kind of fun stuff. They learn all these lessons. Like in Mighty Ducks, where Estevez says to Charlie before the penalty shot, we're here. Yeah. They don't dwell on that moment. But yeah, even if they lost that game, how did they get there? And that fell flat for me in this movie. And I think because I didn't care whether they won or lost, and you have to care a little bit or else that drop in emotion before you get that redemptive moment, it doesn't mean much. So I don't know how you felt about that, but I couldn't help but think again about hardball specifically, just because they're so close. Mm -hmm. 
And the Michael B. Jordan character being that on-again, off-again star for the team. In that movie, you want him to be a part of this group. His relationship with the players is established. You have this emotional connection with G-Baby and what that loss meant to all of them. So there's a real emotional connection to the team succeeding that I found lacking here. And maybe the solution to that might have been exactly what you just said and more of a focus specifically on Tatum O'Neill's character and her relationship with Walter Matthau. Maybe that's one way you can do it to really build on that. But they also spent so much time focusing on Leek. I didn't understand why we were meant to care at all about this kid because all we do is see him be a total dick in a putz. Yes, I understand that he gets nicer to his teammates and he's like, oh, you wanna go for a ride? But why do we care about whether or not he's to succeed? Are we supposed to understand that he comes from some sort of broken home and therefore he's acting out? Or are we supposed to expect that he's unfairly being pushed around by the officials of the league and they Mm. won't let him ride his bike near the diamond or watch the games? And so we want him to show those uptight, no good next who's boss? I don't know. And I don't know if you felt any more connected to him than I did. Joyce Van Patten is one of the people that is doing that to him. So yes. one of the few people in this movie who is a female, other than, of course, Tatum O'Neill. She and Vic Morrow, who's Coach Turner, want him to bail. And then Turner is the one who pretty much convinces Kelly to say, I'm going to play. Because he tries to kick him right out. And I think that Kelly plays it a spite. But here's the answer I have for you. Because of all those things, because he's hanging around a place where he never actually says, can I play? When he clearly would be good enough to play on any of the teams. Yeah. It's not like he's the best player on the Bears and he's just okay. He's the best player maybe in that whole league, or certainly one of the best players in that whole league from what we see of it. He wants to be part of things, but doesn't know how to ask. So I think the movie is shorthanding, especially when two adults, one woman and one man, parent figures in a way, are telling him, get out of here, get away, get your motorbike out of here. And he did a terrible thing earlier by riding on the field and driving over third base, and that was pretty disrespectful, and he could have caused damage to the field. He maybe could have even hit one of the kids with that motorbike if they happened to be in the way and he didn't control it very well. And smoking in the field or near the field is not cool. I've never liked that. I hate when people smoke anywhere near a baseball field. Don't do that. <laughs> but he wants to be part of it so badly. And we don't have much in the way of scenes with him. Jackie Earl Haley is a convincing athlete. His character doesn't get much development, though. But I think what's going on is what you just said. I think it's exactly what Bill Lancaster or Michael Ritchie, by the way, who directed I didn't say his name yet, are going for with him. And then yeah. when he is told by Matthau, go for every ball. And he does. But then the players don't know that. They're insulted that he tried to do that to them. But the coach told him to do that. I played besides players better than me many times. And I played third base beside the best player I've ever played with, who is a shortstop. I played so many games with him. And especially on pop flies. If he had a better angle than me, take it. I don't care. Even if it basically is my ball. If you have a better angle than I do, I was never good with balls in the air. Take it. So I am Tanner. And he, Anthony, on my teams all those years, was Kelly. And I'm saying, go ahead, take the ball. But these kids don't like it, understandably so. So we don't get much development with this, but I think what you said is what's going on with Kelly and what Lancaster intended. This is one of those circumstances where the director and writer are trying to shorthand a thing. And at least in my eyes, they aren't being terribly successful at it. Unlike some of the recent movies we've watched where I've been really happy with how that movie has successfully shorthanded some relationship stuff. That just could be something that was just a miss for me. But you mentioned that scene where he rides the motorbike onto the field just prior to the opening game of the season. And I could not help but think of The Great Escape and the Steve McQueen motorbike (laughs) scene because it's exactly the same. You get rousing music and a chase happening, and then he rides his motorbike right into a barricade. And, of course, in The Great Escape, it's barbed wire and all that kind of stuff. But all I could picture was, oh, man, the Nazis got him again. All right, well. (laughs) The other confusing element of this movie for me tonally was the soundtrack, especially early on. because there's classical music? 
classical constantly music. and at times very somber sounding classical music yep. too am i supposed to be down and depressed is this going to be a gritty drama that i wasn't expecting and then all of a sudden you get some like beep bop beep bop beep bop beep and then somber music i'm like what is going on yeah. the score itself was by jerry fielding who worked with peckinpah sam peckinpah through a lot of the 70s so those deadly serious bloody shoot 'em up type movies like the wild bunch okay that makes sense then. <laughs> but he is playing off of that classical music now i'm not sure if it's supposed to be carmen i think it sometimes it is that song carmen and if you watch jeopardy like bev and i do you will hear that as a clue constantly carmen comes up all the time in that show but also i think it's called habanera here's a connection we haven't brought up yet this movie of course was remade there were sequels for a while there in the 70s yes where they go to japan and spring training if they're called now but then they remade it with Billy Bob Thornton, and it was directed by Richard Linklater. Didn't succeed with critics, didn't succeed with audiences. But Billy Bob is a great choice to play the character. I saw it in the theater, have never seen it since. Some of the same songs, I think it might be Carmen, it might be that Habanera song, if not both, are in a Billy Bob Thornton movie a few years before they did the remake of Bad News Bears, Bad Santa. Um, and the irony of that, I don't know if it's considered deadly serious music, but that classic music that you've all heard that plays so many times in Bad News Bears and a few times in... Bad Santa. Another connection between this movie and that movie, Bad Santa, is when Tanner kicks the Yankee player in the balls during the brawl after, I guess it was the same guy who kicked Tatum O'Neill, knocked her over. So Amanda gets kicked right in the chest. I thought maybe she'd come out of the game. She was already hurting as it was with her arm. And yeah. then he kicks her in the chest. But Tanner to defend her because he finally stands up for his own players. Hoops him right in the balls. But that's the end of Bad Santa where the kid does that to his bully. And that same music is playing as he rides off on his bike. So in that movie, they use that classical music extremely well. I think also classical music plays in the very beginning when Bad Santa is starting and Billy Bob's drinking too much and pees in the alley or vomits in the alley. Yeah. And that music with Bad Santa on the screen and him doing those things plays better maybe than it does in this movie. Yeah, I think so. And I think if you're going to use that kind of classical music in a movie where you want audio contrast to a sight gag of some kind... And in Bad Santa's case, I think at various points in the movie, it's intended to both really hammer home how pathetic this character is, and then other times it's meant to be a harsh contrast to physical comedy ridiculousness going on on screen. What threw me off with its usage in Bad News Bears is when it's happening, oftentimes I didn't see anything on screen that was either truly sad and depressing. Like, if you had played some really dark and morose music over top of Walter Matthau's character cracking a beer in the car and then dumping out part of it and putting whiskey in, sure, you're trying to really depress me. But it, like, came on while he's walking around the diamond and stuff. So it was after the scene where I'd expected it and then there wasn't really anything going on to really substantiate it and they seize the kids and it's really depressing music. I'm like, what is going on? I didn't really get that connection. So it kind of threw me off a little bit. For a movie where I was already struggling to understand the tonal intention of the movie. That didn't help, yeah. It didn't help. But interesting to know that this was intended to be very much a laugh-out-loud comedy from the sounds of it. Laugh-out-loud. Laugh-out-loud. I don't know why I said it that way. The tiny beer I'm drinking is clearly saying yeah, I don't have Matthew's capacity. Although, as we see in this movie, once he's had four, five, six buds or cores or whatever it is, he doesn't handle it too well because he loses all coordination on the mound during the practice. Ends up face-first in the grass as well. Yeah. The more we watch movies of this era the more I'm realizing that the style of editing was definitely a thing within movies of this type because there's a lot of really harsh cuts from one sequence to another. I think prior to that sequence of him on the mound is when he's at the pool with the kids, right? And then all of a sudden we cut directly to some future point of practice where he's just tanked on a bunch of beer where he'd just been at a pool drinking a martini with them earlier in the day. And I guess 
Okay, fill in the blanks. He's just been drinking all day. Maybe drove the kids drunk to the diamond, started yeah, practice, probably did. continued drinking, and then passed out midway. I just wanted more backstory about this guy. He seems like a guy that maybe has his life kind of together, but at the same time is a quasi-non-functional alcoholic who maybe has abandoned his family, but at the same time still keeps in touch with them? Well, we don't know that Amanda's his daughter... But we keep on hearing about her mother, who I don't think ever appears in the film, right? We never do no. see her. She's maybe going to come to watch the game, but she never does. No. So Amanda, who's the best player on the team, or if not best, then second best with Kelly, right? One and two. And of course, they have a crush on each other as well. Is never getting her own mother to come out and watch her play. You say about Matho's backstory, I think he was in the sequels. But I know who played the same character, and they called him Morris Buttermaker. We never hear Morris, of course, in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's always Buttermaker, Boilermaker, Butterworth, what have you. But when they made this into a TV series, it was Jack Warden who played Buttermaker. And then Corey Feldman, by the way, is in that too, young Corey Feldman. But it's funny that Jack Warden played the character because when you hear Vic Morrow speak, and Vic Morrow, of course, is the guy who died in the Twilight Zone accident, Jennifer Jason Lee's father as well. Oh. You didn't know that? Yeah. I didn't know that. No. Yeah, Twilight Zone, the segment that John Landis directed. Vic Morrow oh, the and two movie. kids. Twilight Zone yeah, movie. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah, the movie, yeah. That's right, I did. Read so Vic that, Morrow yeah. died, was that seven years later? When he talked, I thought, he sounds so much like Jack Warden. He has such a similar voice. And I'm looking up during the movie about the sequels and the TV series. And then I see Jack Warden play Buttermaker in the series. So an interesting connection yet again. I don't know what you could and could not say on television in the late 70s, early 80s. I thought this movie was filled with language. But crud, which is the word that Tanner uses over and over again, is something you probably could have said on television. The most controversial thing, as we said, is especially Tanner, primarily Tanner, saying various slurs. Which at the time were thrown around. And I guess that's the point. This kid is not woke, certainly. He's not a kid who's seeing people for what they are. He's a bit of a bully, too. As small as he is, he wants to fight everybody all the time. And he has a problem with lupus, especially, until he sees what the Yankee players are doing to lupus. Then he stands up for him. And it's really a good touch. Just like the end of this film, he loses the fight we hear he has. And he takes on everybody. It's no wonder that he fights the seventh grade or something. We heard about that. We didn't see it. Then we see him lose the fight when he stands up for lupus against the Yankee players. Because the one especially is so much bigger than he is. And the other key connection is they lose the big game. Rocky did it, too. The same year as this. Losing the big game. Friday Night Lights did it so well, too, is probably more effective as a dramatic tool than winning the big game. And apparently they had an alternate ending where Kelly was safe at home in that what would have been inside the park home run. Right. Of course, then the game's only tied. Then you still have to go to extra innings, or maybe they still win it in the bottom of the sixth. They only play six innings in this league. But that was a two-out rally where they're down by four runs. They get a walk, a bun hit, a walk. That's the scene where Turner, the coach, is calling for the intentional walk, and his son won't listen because he's got this rivalry with Engelberg, who gets the inside-the-park... Wait, that was earlier in the game, wasn't it? That yeah, was that's earlier. earlier, right. Where he hits a little bleeder, Engelberg does, and then he gets an that inside was, the park home That run. was post-slapdown when he holds on right. to the... I have to ask you about that since you brought it up. Okay. I found it a really weird choice. Part of it I liked because one of the sincere elements of this movie that I think it does well is portray some of the juvenile behavior, because it's kids, right? Kids are on the diamond playing the game. Sandlot-esque. Yeah, you're going to see some juvenile tactics, some juvenile behavior, and some kids making mistakes. So that's good. But when the kid holds the ball on the mound after the dribble comebacker, refuses to let it go, his teammates tackling him, and you've got Engelbert slowly rounding the bases. Keep going, keep going. (laughs) How is nobody stopping this? Just for the integrity of the game, at least. Give the kid second base, give him first base, second base, whatever. How do you stop it? The play's not dead. I know, but much in the same way I felt that how does this league not have a mercy rule in place for 10-year-olds in the first game? True. 
how does an umpire, a parent, and I get the play's not dead, but this is a kid that's clearly just been slapped very hard by an adult on the mound. And they all saw it. And they all saw it. He's struggling emotionally with that. It's not fair to everybody else on his team that he's doing this. So I get that within the context of baseball, you can't stop a live play, but that felt like a weird choice to me. I'm glad you brought that up because that's such a key part. When we get to what is going to be the final game, there's about 30 minutes left in the movie, and I was surprised, but I didn't remember that Buttermaker becomes such a dick for so long until he actually just hears himself with what he's saying to these kids. Yeah. And then finally he changes and he plays everybody, which again, Mighty Ducks, that's one of the elements that Estevez's character has in that. When it's getting towards the end, it's a close game. It's rather than if you don't win, you're off the team next year, or if you miss the shot, young Gordon, you'll regret it forever, which he does. And instead he says to all of them, but especially Charlie, let's not forget to have fun out there. And yeah. Buttermaker doesn't say anything like that. There's no dialogue. One of the better parts of Lancaster's screenplay is when Buttermaker just hears himself. He realizes what's going on. Maybe they cut to too many faces and you see what they all are thinking. Every single one of these kids is feeling bad about the way the Buttermaker is being so, let's call it abusive, because he was. Yeah. There's no dialogue though where Buttermaker says, because he does apologize to them earlier for not caring very much. And when he starts to train them how to play baseball, he already had apologized, but he doesn't do it there. He just stops what he was doing, and he makes sure to get all the lesser players in, and the Yankees score four runs in the process. Yes, you get Lupus making that Kirby Puckett-esque over-the-fence <laughs> catch of what would have been a home run. That was a cute moment. Mm-hmm. But then that puts him in a big hole, and had he not done that, and the guy who hired him to run this team, Whitewood, doesn't like it very much because, well, our kids can win. Buttermaker thought the same thing minutes before, but he realizes it's more important that all the kids get to play. I'm glad there's no dialogue hammering it on the head too much. But just as far as them winning and losing in this movie, that's one of the best touches about it because, yeah, they lose early on. We've seen that so many sports films before this. Well, at least certainly since this, it's become such a staple. But when we see the montage, 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 you don't just see them winning games, even though they win plenty of those because of Kelly and Amanda, but they lose lots of games too in that montage. So they get a lot better. They end up finishing second somehow, but they're not just winning. And then in the end, had they won, I could see why the test audiences are right to overrule what Richie maybe... I don't know if Richie wanted that, the director, if he wanted that, or if Lancaster wanted it, or the studio wanted it. But the test audiences are right. The fact that they don't win means that then they can celebrate with beer, and you'd have that, again, fairly funny line from... Not hilarious line, at least, but Tanner, where the Yankees, hey, we respect you now. You tried your best. You're not a real baseball team still. Hey, Yankees, up your ass! Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't do that if they won. And that's the better ending, having all these kids, well, they shouldn't be drinking or sharing beer, but for your comedy's sake, that's a better ending than if they actually had won the game. We talked about it again recently, and of course we did Hardball back in April this year, a movie I love, but I wish we didn't know if they won the championship, because I don't think we need to know that. Because Keanu Reeves' character even literally says the line, the most important thing is, you showed up. The most important thing in life is showing up. And that is one of the template elements of this movie that others have followed to greater or lesser degrees of success over the years is understanding that it doesn't really matter all that much if the team wins. The more effective thing is the emotional revelation that somebody in the movie has. Usually it's the coach, but it can be players too or whatever. It's all about these other things. It's not really about winning or losing. And I felt conflicted about that final game at various points because you can see what's coming. All right, here's exactly how the last 20 minutes of this movie are going to play out. But I wish they had somehow massaged the last game a little bit differently so that it wasn't these kids coming in in a 2-2 game and all of the bench players getting subbed in. 3-3, but okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was 3-3, wasn't it? Actually, Chris, it was 3-3. This changes everything! (laughs) It was 7-3 going to the bottom of the 6th or 7th, whatever. Sixth. Six, yeah, which was weird. I've said they played 7. Well, we played 7 in our level of ball. Yeah. But I guess it's because they just make the game shorter. I guess. Can you imagine, if you're that age... 
and you're on a team that is in the finals of your league and you know you don't really deserve to be there, Ogilvy knows, you're probably the worst player not on the team, but maybe in the league, other than Lupus, and your team's tied and you're going to the last inning and then the coach wants all of you to go in and you're like, what? And then the other team starts scoring runs on you and you just feel like you let all of your teammates down because you just know you're not good, right? I've had that feeling as a kid before. I have. If I was one of those kids, I'd be like, no, I'm staying nailed to the bench. Let Kelly finish the game out because if we win, we're all going to have fun. We're going to have pizza, whatever. I don't need to play this last inning and cost us the championship. You I'm know? part of the team. I'm surprised actually in Little League that they wouldn't have had a thing where every kid has to play every game, at least at some point. Yes. To get in the lineup and that makes sense. Yeah. Literal lineup at some point. But you just said something I can relate to, and I probably related this story before. When I was in the high school basketball team, I'm 5'7". You were just dunking on everybody, <laughs> and you just you're making fun of all the bench players. We had a small school. In my senior year, we only had three players on the bench, and I was the eighth man in the whole team then. So I was, well, I guess 12th man is what you'd call it, but I was the eighth man. <laughs> I didn't play much, and I shouldn't have played much. I said to our coach, and it wasn't a championship game we got to, but there's so many levels in Ontario basketball athletics, at least when I was yeah, a kid. You can are. get to what they called SASA and OFSA and all these other acronyms. I guess you could get to the point you play some kind of all, what they call all state in America, but all province. A nationwide. Or even nationwide. Okay, I don't know. No school of mine ever got that far. But we did okay. We were at some kind of championship type level. And I said to him before I started, I don't want to play today because I want to win. I literally said that. I was 17 or 18 years old. I thought maybe I was almost 19. This is more important than me playing today. Yeah. And I'm sure the coach wasn't going to play me anyway. He doesn't have to worry about this now. This guy has literally told me he doesn't want to play. So I was Ogilvy. But then Buttermaker overrules him because he wants them all to play. Yeah. Which is a nice touch. But yeah, they do lose the game because of that. I was an old man when I was a kid. As I'm (laughs) sure anybody who's heard this podcast knows, I was 80 years old when I was 12. So I would have been of the same mind. Anytime I played on any teams, which I didn't play a lot in high school, had zero confidence in myself, which is really sad to think about. But I would have said the same thing because ultimately I want to win. I want to celebrate with my teammates. It doesn't really matter to me if I play all that much. But for the purposes of this movie, I get that they need this moment because this moment is triggered by Buttermaker's revelation about how he's treating the kids and what's really important. And then that leads him to subbing in all the other players. And even that moment with Ogilvy, who's the stats guy, he's the manager, effectively, mm-hmm. of the team. And he says, I'm the worst player out there except Lupus. Don't put me in, coach. I don't need to go in. And then he has that smile on his face when he walks about the whole thing. So I get why the movie did it. I just felt weirdly conflicted about it just because I put myself in the shoes of those kids. Having, we've both been there before. We've both been there before. The other element of that last game that made me laugh inappropriately to a certain extent, I can't remember the kid's name, the backup pitcher who's the outfielder. Stein. Rudy. Who hit the ball over the head of the outfielder and they got thrown out at second mm-hmm. in that final. He was out by so many feet. He shouldn't have tried. But then, at least, Buttermaker says, hey, I like the hustle. No, that was good. It was still a bad baseball play. They're down by three runs. But I've already said I like some of the elements of the... Or four runs. Sorry, four runs. They're down by four runs. Four runs, Ryan. (laughs) Actually, Ryan, let me correct me. (laughs) I appreciate some of the elements of the way this movie is portrayed because it is kids playing it, so it should look kind of disjointed and messy and they make mistakes. But that ball went so far over the outfielder's head and then it cuts to Rudy rounding and then all of a sudden the ball's getting thrown into second before he's even halfway there. I'm like, what the hell just happened? (laughs) This outfielder went from totally whiffing on the ball to apparently just getting to it and lasering it to second base in half a second. But then what killed me is later in that inning when Kelly comes up to the plate, he hits a gapper, right, to right center. Very similar depth of ball and all that. And he nearly makes it home. Either Rudy was sauntering his way to second base and it just didn't come across on screen, or 
the outfielders were like bonking into each other on Kelly's ball or something, but it was like the same ball in both instances, and yet one guy got twice as far effectively as the second. Normally the right fielder has the better arm, but maybe on this team their left fielder had the better arm. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, at least a depiction of the sport. Now, I was reading online, there are details about the standings they show a few times that are not accurate, about which teams are even in the league. I guess their names changed a few times. And also, the number of games they played doesn't match up, but we've seen that kind of continuity thing in lots of movies. I don't care. I didn't know it, and I had read that ahead of time it was going to be like that. They don't dwell yeah. on it. They do it more in The Mighty Ducks, where there's a big close-up, I think. That doesn't really <laughs> jibe exactly. Plus, yeah. how they do the playoffs. We talked about that in The Mighty Ducks podcast all those years ago, about how the Ducks are playing the best team in the championship. Why weren't they playing them in the first round when they barely made the playoffs exactly. themselves? You could do some kind <laughs> yeah. of name-drawing thing, hat-drawing thing, I guess. But anyway, but apart from that kind of stuff, and apart from what you're saying now, considering it's little kids playing the game, and I don't know that Tatum O'Neill is necessarily a great athlete because we don't see her bat once, and the pitching, they could have worked with stunt doubles and editing and whatnot to make it work well. I think Jackie Earl Haley is probably a pretty good athlete. But I think the depiction, considering it's kids and all those other factors, is pretty good. These are kids who, for the most part, aren't very good, and they're not meant to be very good, except for when we're watching scenes with the Yankees making plays and stuff. So you can just kind of let them play, and whatever happens probably just kind of happens, and it looks natural that way. So the kids in hardball, I remember thinking this because we watched that back in March and then posted it back in April. Some of them look like they're maybe not minorly ready at that age, but they can throw the ball. But then that's what we yeah. said before, that I think most athletes in the last 20 or 30 years, whether they be young people like them in that movie, maybe they're supposed to be older a little bit in that movie, except for G-Baby. But anyway. Rest in peace, G-Baby. Yeah. <laughs> or certainly the grown men and grown women, are just simply better athletes than they ever were in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Listen, let's not cast a wide net over everybody in the 70s, because one thing we can all agree on is that Walter Matthau was a perfect physical specimen. Well, there's the other thing. is Can you score up this movie? I hope not when there's kids <laughs> primarily in the cast. Although Tatum O'Neill's got one hell of a tan. She works on it hard. But she's 11, so we'll get past that right now. Sorry I brought that up. But Walter Matthau was the Brad Pitt of the 70s. <laughs> oh, clearly. It goes without saying. I just spent the whole movie saying, take off your shirt, Walter. <laughs> take it off. i got to see those glistening abs. The inspiration for Homer Simpson, very appropriately. So there's no score factor in this movie. Although, Zero. then again... Negative score Sorry. Factor. One little thing we will bring up, though. Mrs. Turner, when she's mad at her husband for the way that he treated his son by slapping him, Joey, when she turns around... I'm not usually into really skinny women, but... That's one impressive back she has. She's got a midriff-bearing outfit, a Shania Twain-type outfit. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing in this movie that was remotely attractive and appealing. And then it cuts immediately to Matho. Oh, all right. There that yeah. goes. Yeah. Zero scoreability. Decent depiction of the sport. Fairly solid, actually, on the whole. What kind of killed me throughout the movie, for all of Buttermaker's revelation about what's really important in the game and the relationships that these kids are building... He never stops Amanda from cheating. She uses Vaseline. A, nobody picks up on it somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know how the other coaches are not like, why is this girl constantly wiping? Of all the substances that you can cheat with, having a gobbit of Vaseline... Would be noticeable. Oh, so noticeable. She's the Gaylord Perry of the minor leagues. Yeah. The little leagues. This is one thing that I was counting on happening that didn't happen. That he was going to go to her and go like, listen, we're going to play this one natural. Respect the integrity of the game. Because for all of his bluster... He talks a lot throughout this movie about elements of baseball, and it sounds like his character is meant to be one of those people that really respects the game, ultimately, and wants it to be played in a respectful way. We see that contrasted against the Yankees manager later, when he's going, oh, my kids play the game the right way. They play it hard, but they play the right way. Whereas Matho's character by that point is like, no, respect the game, respect what Mm -hmm. it means, and not just the right way to play within the rules is, but the right way to play 
from like a moral perspective as right. well. And the fact that at no point, after the initial comment when he's explaining to one of his players, she looks like she's licking her fingers and then drying them, but she's really wiping Vaseline from the tip of her cap, and that's why you get that little dive on her curveball. You get that early on, and then it's never talked about again, except we see her doing it throughout the movie. So she clearly keeps doing it. She clearly keeps doing it. So I guess... The moral here is that cheat as long as you we're don't rooting get for caught. the Houston Astros. Yes, <laughs> Garrett Cole. We're rooting for Garrett Cole. All right, yeah. With his sticky stuff. Now I mentioned the director Michael Ritchie. So he directed four sports films. We could cover these at some point. Downhill Racer with Robert Redford in the late sixties. Oh, yeah. Semi Tough, which I don't think I've ever seen before. And then Wildcats, which I've mentioned a few times because Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes, who we've covered plenty of times in other sports movies, including the one they did together, one of the best ones we've ever covered, White Man Can't Jump. They're both in that. I think it's small roles. But he did four sports movies that I could see in his resume, and we'll probably cover more of them as the years go on. You think about the directors we've covered the most, and one day he may be the one we cover more than anyone else. I think he did a pretty solid job directing this film. I just wish it had been funnier. I think you agree with that. I don't think I even asked you when we started this podcast if you actually liked the movie. Because for me, and I'll give my score right now to address that point, if you gave four star ratings, I'd give it three, I think, because I think the movie achieves what it wanted to. And I really have to look back at the lens of when this movie was made, but knowing what came after. If it wasn't this one, it was one of the ones that's so influential on this template. And the fact they don't win is that great reverse of what you expected. And they bond because of that. And we have some of the great dramatic and serious scenes in this comedy, which we think are the best scenes in the whole film. So I would give it a three out of four if it was a star rating or six and a half out of ten, seven, whatever. Even though I didn't laugh that much at what's supposed to be this great 70s comedy. It depends on what you're expecting to take out of the movie going in. If you're watching it as a fan of movies and you understand this movie's place in film history and how it influenced what came after, then I totally understand that scoring. If you're just asking, did you enjoy watching it last night? It was one of those movies where I watched the whole thing and I was just like, yeah, that was 90 minutes that just happened. I didn't feel angry as I felt at some of the movies we watched. Like, you just wasted my time and I didn't love it. I'd give it, like, right down the middle, five out of ten, two out of four stars or whatever. Because it has elements of it that I certainly respect. Like, the Matthau-Tatum O'Neill relationship, I think, is effective, at least at times. The sincerity of the movie, like I said earlier, is apparent. And this is what I found most insulting about some of the movies. And I think you agree with me on this, that we've watched in the past. Where it's like, this is such a cash-grabby type of movie that... The filmmakers and writers made no effort to even become familiar with the subject matter, and it was almost insulting as a fan of the sport to watch it. This, at least, you get the sense that, yes, the people that made it know and care about this sport, and probably particularly about this level of sport and this age of the people playing it. So I give it credit for those things, but like you said, I chuckled at one or two of the moments we've talked about, but it's not a comedy anymore. It's just not. Well, I forget how many 70s comedies we've covered, but we talked about the three we know for sure. I guess we could say four, because Caddyshack is 1980. It's basically 70s, 70s style. And we didn't think that movie was all that funny. We didn't think Longest Yard was all that funny, even though there's some good stuff in it, good dramatic stuff in it. And Burt Reynolds, of course, such a great natural athlete and such a great star. And Slapshot, Paul Newman, we've covered him a few times in the past, actually, Color of Money being the other one. That's right. We could see that movie maybe being the funniest of all of them, probably, but even that's not all that funny. But it's not like they're bad movies. They're just not funny that they could be. Yeah. Or they should be, or they're raved about being now. Exactly. And I think that's the biggest problem from somebody that doesn't have a connection with these movies from way back when. If you were to go into it now, reading all of these rave retrospectives written by people that are probably of the age that they saw these when they were 10 years old and they remember them, oh, look at how great these were, and you have that nostalgic connection, you might, as a new viewer, watch these movies and the ones you just talked about from a similar time period and be like, oh, this is going to be great. This is such a landmark comedy movie. And then you just watch it and you're confused. But if you understand... 
maybe this era of movie had a different expectation of what comedy was and instead watch it for the experience of watching it and then make your own determinations, you'll probably enjoy it more, I would guess. One of these days we should cover one of the really, truly old sports movies. The oldest one we've ever done, I think, is Longest Yard, which was the year I was born. It's not the oldest one. We haven't done anything pre If it's not the oldest, then it's one of the very oldest. So we've almost always been within your lifetime and usually mine too. And of course, the whole point of the podcast originally was to do movies when we were youngish, especially you, when you were 16, 18, 20 years old. But it would be interesting to cover something from, say, the 40s or the 50s or even the 20s because yeah. there are a few films in the silent era one of which I recorded years ago when you were moving, thinking I'd need to maybe just do a podcast on my own. I still have it somewhere in my archives, a movie that Harold Lloyd did. It'd be interesting to see what you think of those really old movies, because Bev and I have reviewed a lot of old comedies. Forget sports movies, just comedies. And very rarely are they actually funny to us. But I'd be curious to see if you think they're funny. You probably won't. And if the sports are remotely good. It'd be interesting to see. That silent movie, is it a baseball movie? Football. Football. Oh, yeah, even more interesting. That it would be football from that era. Okay, well, that was the Bad News Bears, mid-70s. Oh, sorry. You just reminded me when saying that before you close it out. Why are they called the Bad News Bears? Oh, because a few times in the movie, of course, the name is the Bears. The Bears. No, Bears make sense. But Bad News, a few times he says, well, one time anyway, he says about how the athletics is going to be bad news for the athletics. I can't do my Homer Simpson voice. Be bad news for the athletics tomorrow. But then he says Uh, it again. I think one of the kids says it later on. It'll be bad news for the White Sox or whatever the opponent is. I see. Okay, fair enough. Okay, well, that was the Bad News Bears, mid-70s comedy quote-unquote classic, which we thought was okay at best, but hey, good dramatic stuff at least. Nothing wrong with that. Who knows what we'll cover Walter Matthau again, although he did play a sports writer in The Odd Couple, which was a blockbuster the decade before this in the late 60s with Lemon, mm-hmm. and then he was also an avid gambler in real life. Big-time gambler. Was he really? Yeah. Apparently, he bet a lot of money and lost, and of course, sometimes won a lot of money in his life. So I don't think we'll cover him again for a sports film. But he was into sports betting. (laughs) Okay, in two weeks, we'll post our final episode of the year as we deal full houses and flushes and talk about poker and Daniel Craig's 007 debut in the now 15-year-old, can you believe that? No, I can't. Casino Royale. Royale with cheese. With Le Chiffre. Right. I haven't seen this movie in quite a while, but I've seen it plenty of times over the years. And if you want to watch it before, listeners, then definitely check it out on Crave if you're Canadian, because that's where we're going to watch it. I have the DVD, but we'll see it on Crave. I expect we'll agree that the poker depiction in Casino Royale is just on point and outdoes even rounders on that front. Doesn't he get a royal flush to the ace and he beats some other incredibly four jacks or something like that? Hands that would never come up on the same round. He has a straight flush and he beats a ace high flush. I okay. think Spoiler it's... alert. <laughs> I, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. We'll have to find out when we watch it, Ryan. Yeah, it's a bit of an excuse to cover this movie because it isn't really that much about the poker. But there is poker in it, so we'll get to cover a classic from 15 years ago. Well, if not classic, then the one that rejuvenated the franchise. And, of That's course, right. No Time to Die, as we record this, is still in theaters right now. By the time we post it, it'll probably be on demand and in home viewing availability. So we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. You can email us at ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. And you can always just throw out a smoke signal or snowballs at the house and say, Hi! And just stop it high. That's all you need to say to us. <laughs> just throw snowballs at the house? Well, we post this in what will be December, so there'd be snowballs available. Whose house are they throwing them at? Yours. Do you give out our addresses in the description? <laughs> we live in Toronto somewhere. <laughs> just peg every find house in the city of 10 million people. Beth and I moved so often that people probably did find us at one point and then we left. Is it because people were pegging your house with snowballs that you move so often? Yes. Yeah, fair. Okay. So take your easy, Turner, the coach on the other team. Your wife might leave you. But you definitely have a lot of work to do to fix things with your son. 
Take her easy. Jerk. At least he has the championship trophy. That'll keep him warm at night. Up yours, Yankees. <laughs>